Material in this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. SmartVestor Pro is for customer service only and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Ng Associates, a registered investment advisor. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. We have a great show lineup for today. We're going to start off with the five transformative technologies that are on the brink, John. These are things that are going to change the world we live in, and they appear to be right on the brink of busting loose and really making big impacts in our society. So, uh, very inf- uh, interesting topic. Yeah, um, technology is rapidly changing, and we can't forecast it. That's the difficult thing about technology is you really know, don't know how transformative it is until you look back in history a little bit. That's exactly right. Yeah, we're going to follow up with a, an article uh, about uh, hating to lose money. I mean, there's an interesting, uh, it's called prospect theory. So we're going to get into some educational topics, Steve. We're going to go into the, uh, the realm of the mind a little bit. And, um, you know, basically the pain of loss typically is a stronger motivator than the reward of gain. And so we're going to dive into some scenarios and kind of talk about why people are so of, of loss adverse. Loss aversion, yes. They, and when you look at the market, it plays into how your emotions react. So we're going to dive into that on the second topic. Yeah, that's going to be a great topic. By the way, I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro with over 20 years' experience of providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm also a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro, have an MBA in finance, and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 20 years. And we are excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every week on Friday afternoons. Yeah, you can also go to iTunes and you can uh, download us uh, from that medium. Uh, you can also go to our website, Steve, uh, moneymd.net. We have a link on the right-hand side for our podcast. It'll actually take you to another website where we have all the uh, the previous podcasts and they're categorized by topic. So a uh, great way to get us on Friday afternoons. Also, email us your questions. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us directly at info at moneymd.net. Well, John, um, we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this comes from the New York Times. And, you know, we've been talking a little bit about President Trump's agenda. And one of those is tax reform. And so it sounds like really easy to do. But if you go back and look at um, uh, Ronald Reagan's State of the Union challenge back in 1984, he wanted to simplify the tax code. Uh, so all taxpayers were treated more fairly. It took him almost three years wow. to enact that. So, you know, I know he has that as one of his top priorities coming out, but it's it might not happen in 2017. I mean, it may be out in 2018 yeah, or even 2019. Yeah, that sounds like that could be a very long-term problem, I mean, to fix. And right. uh, I definitely think we need to do it, but um, you definitely might want to get it work on the wall first. <laughs> Man, he's got a lot of stuff going on. So. A lot of stuff going on. So uh, it'll be interesting to see where that heads. But tax reform will be great. But good point. It's not going to be fast. All right. And that leads us up to our first topic here. And that is the five transformative technologies on the brink of making major changes, John, to our society. Um, you know, we heard a great talk a few weeks ago, you and me, at the TD Ameritrade Conference by an author and entrepreneur, um, Salem uh, Ismail. Um, so I borrowed a few of this information, some of this information from him. Very interesting and impactful talk about the future. And you know, we all love technology. I mean, who doesn't love the newest iPhone or the gadget to make life easier? 
Um, and when you look back at history, there has been a steady stream of incredible advancements over the, the centuries, really, sure. that have changed society forever. I mean, take the printing press. Before then, it was impossible to widely disseminate information, and books had to all be hand-copied. But then we had an invention by the German Johannes Gutenberg um, around 1440, and it was groundbreaking, and it spread the volume of printed material exponentially over the coming decades. And then there were other transformative technologies, like the first electric motor, in 1832 that started the industrial revolution Um, then there was the telephone 1876 the light bulb and the first power plant in 1880s along with the first gasoline powered car and then there was the airplane came along in 1903 and the invention of plastic in 1907 so what an incredible period of innovation we Mm -hmm. had back in the late 1800s that really transformed the world. And I think that that's kind of similar to what we're headed for. Here. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, more recently, um, the first computer was in 1943, and the first personal computer and cell phone occurred in the mid-'70s. Um, then you had the World Wide Web, you know, WWW in 1990, the first smartphone in 1992. You know, but today, like you said, we seem to be on the brink of another industrial revolution in technology, and the cycle time to invention and implementation has gotten much shorter than ever before. And, you know, while these uh, new inventions certainly are exciting, there is a dark side to them. It's so really interesting as we talk through this, and, and that is that, you know, industries will be hurt and jobs are going to disappear. They're going to be taken over by technology. And, you know, obviously the outcome of these technologies, it really can't be predicted. People try to sit there and look at this, and there is no way – for anyone to be able to figure out how these technologies are going to change industries. And, you know, some people do claim to, uh, to know how this is going to play out, but we believe that you have to be careful and prudent in planning your investments so you don't get caught up in these um, disruptions that are likely going to occur. We just don't know where. Yeah, that's exactly right. So let's take a look at some of these transformative <clears throat> technologies that are coming down the pipe and how they might affect the landscape in the near future. First one here, John, is is had a lot of press lately, and that is autonomous cars. I mean, this is a big one, and this technology has the ability to change the way we live. I mean, consider the fact there are over 130,000 cars in New York City alone, and studies show that it might only take like 9,000 cars to move everybody around if they were all autonomous without the need for a driver and an individual owner. Um, that's a big difference. You know, if we could simply call our Uber autonomous car or a cell phone anytime we wanted and it shows up within a minute, imagine how the need for a car drops for those living in urban areas. I mean, self-driving cars are already being tested in over a dozen cities now, and this is a technology that has a huge impact um, economically and is being pushed rapidly for some of those reasons. I mean, think of how nice it would be for your elderly mother to not have to worry about driving to the store or getting mm-hmm. on the highway in a car. I mean, that would be that would be you know a game changer. It'd be a lot for safer elderly folks. It really would. <laughs> you know, but then there's the negative side of this technology. Unfortunately, there's always a negative side. I mean, there are over three million professional drivers in the U.S. alone whose jobs could be on the line. Truck drivers can only go maybe 14 hours a day, but an autonomous truck can drive 24-7. So the economic incentive for truck 
companies, for transportation companies, is huge. I mean, how much could Uber or other major taxi companies make if they didn't have to pay drivers? I mean, how many new cars will GM and Ford be selling if demand drops in the big cities? I mean, consider that auto companies, like all companies, depend on growth to keep their stock up. You know, if we saw even a small, steady decline in sales, then the stock price would plummet for those companies. I mean, think of all the car dealerships, the, the salespeople, the automotive part suppliers. I mean, furthermore, you know, consider how much real estate is taken up by parking lots for all the cars in big cities. Studies show that parking needs could drop by 40 to 62% in big cities, freeing up miles of real estate and lowering prices in all the major cities for real estate. Um, you know, then there's the insurance industry, which stands to lose big if the promise for much safer driving proves true, because auto insurance is a $200 billion a year industry. Mm-hmm. So there are some big changes, you know, disruptions that take place along with the good side of it, yeah. which is, is obvious for autonomous cars. And it's far-reaching, and you got UPS and FedEx and... It just goes on and on and how it disrupt many, many different industries. Um, another right. one here on the list, Steve, is, is solar power. I mean, this is a, another big one with huge implications. Of course, this has been around for a long time with a very slow adoption rate. However, you know, the price prices for solar panels have plummeted over the past several years and the efficiency has gone up. So, so this could all be changing. I mean, the cost of solar powers has dropped from over $3 a watt to less than a dollar a watt in just a couple of years. And the lifetime cost of rooftop solar is now at or below parity with the grid power in many parts of the country, and it's continuing to drop. So we're starting to see a lot of changes in this, and now there's actually something called solar roofing that will be available later this year and is projected to cost less than conventional roofing, roofing when you count for all the energy savings. And I'll tell you that um, I, I yep. drive um, through um, uh, up to Saluda occasionally, and there is a solar field outside of Saluda, South Carolina. And oh, it really? is a massive, it's probably three or four acres of panel after panel after panel. And I'm thinking, where in the heck are they taking this, this energy? Because there's I mean, Salute is not a big place, right? Um, but it is probably three or four acres. It is a solar farm. Yeah, wow. And it's thousands of solar, you know, re- receptacles. So it's happening. Yeah, Kathy's parents own some land, and they've been approached about leasing their land mm-hmm. long term to a solar company to build a solar farm, basically. Yep. So it's out there. You know, you don't see it a whole lot, but it it is moving pretty rapidly. And Solar City has a new gigafactory that will begin turning out 10,000 solar panels per day later this year. And that's projected to drive the cost and, and, and you know down, and it's going to make rooftop systems far more available. You combine that with Tesla's new home battery system, which can store 13.5 kilowatt hours of power, um, and this system may be more an obvious replacement for backup generators and, you know, just, just grid power. Yeah, utility companies. <laughs> yeah, so it's a scary prospect for utility companies, but it's coming, and it's coming really, really fast. Um, so, you know, why are these technologies a game changer for the industry and industry, industry, energy industry? Well, it's simple. It's economics. I mean, once rooftop solar becomes widely available and economically cheaper than grid power, then it's likely going to catch on like online shopping. 
<laughs> you know, and we know how fast that caught on. Mm-hmm. I mean, here's the rub. Alone, with cheap and clean energy, it could be very disruptive to utility companies and the oil and gas industry where millions of people work. I mean, over time, these industries will likely start to decline if solar really does take off, displacing hundreds of thousands of workers each year. I mean, these people might have to retool and retrain in other professions like solar power. You know, these are, are such large industries, it could be very disruptive to large portions of our economy. Meanwhile, we will all benefit or should benefit from much cheaper and cleaner power. Yeah, one of the stats that kind of puts it in perspective that, that Salim uh, Ismail used is that if you look at all the reserves of oil, um, natural gas, coal, uh, it adds up to five days of all of the energy that the sun produces. So that that the, hits the earth with. Yeah, that's yeah. right. If you look yeah. at all the reserves that are out there, it's five days of, of you know the sun. It's it, minuscule. It, yeah, it really is. The sun is, is producing so an incredible is, amount of power. It's big so time. really is. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Next, we have drones. Yes, I mean, we're talking about the Amazon drones and the, the delivering everything from packages to pizza. I mean, I know it sounds a little far-fetched and a little too early to take it seriously, but testing is already well underway, and drones have become much more capable of carrying larger payloads. In fact, they can now carry up to 40 pounds. You can buy one right off Amazon that carries up to 40 pounds, John, and can fly five miles, and this capacity is doubling every year. The cost and time of delivering packages by a drone will be a fraction of what it now costs to deliver packages with UPS or or the Postal Service. So, I mean, let's face it. You know, we all want our stuff quickly, and there can be no quicker way than a drone flying directly to your house, even if it makes multiple deliveries along the way. I mean, and it doesn't stop there. I mean, the mail could be another obvious application for drone deliveries, along with all kinds of goods and services from flowers to pizza. Yeah. Yeah, and again, like like you're talking about, Steve, this can be very disruptive to um, the delivery business. You look at UPS, it's a $49 billion business, makes almost 5 billion deliveries per year, employs over 400,000 people and another 490,000 postal service employees and while drones seem like a, a great innovation and convenience for us consumers it could really have a devastating impact on the delivery business as major retailers start running their own delivery drones and delivery drivers are a thing of the past so that's the downside of it yeah that's exactly right next year on the list john number four is robotics and while robots are nothing new they've been around for over 30 years they are now starting to really make inroads and in doing some meaningful functions for the average person. And they've reached new heights for, for industry. I mean, take the robo mower, for instance. <laughs> um, these little machines are now available on Amazon for under $1,000. They can mow up to a half an acre. And while I don't see robots taking over all the local lawn boy jobs, you know, anytime soon, the robot evolution revolution is already spreading quickly i mean there is the robo vacuum cleaner there's the robo mower there's the window bot there's the grill cleaning bot yeah there's you've a heard lot of things out there roomba roomba, roomba yeah is the, right you know, the vacuum the, cleaner yeah it thing. just does itself does it's itself does your house so i mean the really interesting part of these innovations is the speed at which <clears throat> artificial intelligence is starting to expand these machines quickly learn their way around 
they improve their efficiency as they learn. And this technology has wide implications beyond the home in industries like agriculture where they have spraying and fertilizing robots. Um, they can spray herbicide directly on the weeds without spraying anything else. They save thousands of gallons of chemicals and tens of thousands of dollars per year in costs, not to mention the environment. It's safe to say robots are expanding at a very wide rate that we've never seen before, and they have the potential to be a game changer when it comes to repetitive tasks around the home and industry. Yeah, and some of these technologies, Steve, are you know scary when you think about them. What's going to happen to the delivery industry and so forth? But you know, there's industries that have already gone through this. You look at the um, the, the photo industry with um, cameras and and how that whole industry shifted. And so exactly. there's another business that pops up, another model that employs people, but it's just different than what it used to be. It's so, a lot of change very quickly. Yeah, very much so. And the last one here on the list is genetic engineering. This is fascinating. I mean, this is a science that has finally come of age and stands to change the way we use medicine um, to, you know, to grow produce uh, forever. I mean, doctors are treating more and more cancers and treating genetically tailored uh, to the individual patient. So these new treatments hold the promise of curing many forms of cancers and other diseases. Uh, there's a new technology called uh, CRISPR um, and has changed the way scientists can modify DNA, like you would cut and paste a Word document on your computer. It's made it very quick and very inexpensive to modify DNA of all types, and this certainly has widespread, widespread applications from treatments to, uh, to embryo modifications to produce, to food, and so forth. So, you know, there's, there's some positive things to this, but like you said, there can be some, some dark side to this as well. Yeah, I mean, you have moral implications when you're talking about, you know, human embryos. I mean, but if you want your child to have blue eyes, blonde hair, no problem, they say. Now they can just pluck it in and, you know, modify the DNA to do that. I mean, you want to grow tomatoes that are immune to blossom rot, then there you are. They can do that. The applications out there are just now starting to take shape, and they stand to change the way we approach genetic diseases to the way we farm produce. So there are big changes on the horizon for uh, for all these things out there. So the point to these amazing breakthroughs is that we may be on the verge of multiple Gutenberg moments like the printing press all at the same time, which have the great, which may be great for society, but also have very disruptive sides for our economy and certain industries. So what does it have to do with your investments? It means that you might expect major shifts in industries going forward but in very unpredictable ways. I mean, everyone thought satellite radio <clears throat> was the wave of the future for decades, but it's already being replaced by smartphones. Um, you know, it, it seemed obvious that the satellite iridium phone of the 1990s would take over cellular, but the opposite was true, and iridium went bankrupt. I mean, so if you want to prepare for the tsunami of changes coming over the next decade with your investments, Now's the time to be truly diversified in many industries and many sectors around the world. You don't want to be caught overweighted in Blockbuster when Netflix comes on the scene. You know, these technologies evolve very quickly and unpredictably, and some companies will rise while many others are destroyed. So, you know, now more than ever is the time to make sure that you're well diversified and in a world-class portfolio. So give us a call if we can help you with that evaluation there's that diversification word again exactly 
All right, and that leads us up here to our question of the week. This question has to do with um, the market. Market's done well, set all-time highs for the most part. Um, this person's sitting in cash, and they're scared about jumping back in at such a high point, and what should I do? And I guess the first thought is, is well, we don't know if it's at a high point. Now, relative to where it's been, it is, but who's to say it's not going to go up even higher from here? Um, exactly. So there's two approaches. You can jump back in uh, all at once and put it in. That's generally what we recommend. Some people are scared to do that so they can do it periodically over time, maybe put in a fourth over you know four months or, or the rest of the year. So that's a more conservative approach. Uh, no one knows what the market's going to do from here. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I was just making this point last night to a client, and that is that even with the market where it is, regardless of what it's done in the past, there is always about a 60% chance or better that it will continue to rise. You know, the market goes up over time, and it doesn't matter whether it's already gone up 30% or whether it's gone down 30%. The the odds of it going up are better than the odds of it going down from here statistically. So you have to take that into account and... You know, if you want to spread your, your money out in dollar cost average, that's fine, but uh, it's more likely to cost you than it, mm-hmm. than it is to benefit you. So, good question of the week. Okay, and that leads us up here to our next topic, and that is, you know, hating to lose money can cost you big. Yeah, this is uh, from uh, Michael Krumholtz. He's a, an advisor out of CFG. And um, so here's a little little quiz for you, Steve. Imagine you've been given $1,000 and you have two options. Number one, you're guaranteed to win an additional 500 or option B, you can flip a coin, and if it comes up with heads, you receive another $1,000, so nothing more. So what would you take there? Uh, Guaranteed well, 500 or the opportunity to win another 1000 Well, I'm pretty good at math, so I actually know these are the same, right? Uh, kind of, sort of. Yeah, right, kind of, sort of. Well, anyway, you know, I like the opportunity to win an addition, yeah. but I think most people are going to say they... Guaranteed, yeah. They want the and guarantee. And it's a more conservative approach, and we do we do see that. And the second one here, now imagine you're given $2,000, and these two options, you're guaranteed to lose 500 or you flip a coin, and if it comes heads, you lose 1000 If it comes up tails, you lose nothing. So yeah, so everybody's going to take the 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 guaranteed loss of only five hundred probably, um, rather than a thousand. I don't know. Yeah, if you look at the the stats when they go back and look at how people chose, most people choose A because they want the guaranteed amount, but most people also choose um, uh, B in the second one because they don't they they don't want to have that loss that guaranteed loss of the gotcha. five hundred. They want the yep. chance. Um, not to lose any. So in, in both option A's, you're finished with a sure gain or a loss, and the final number ends up to be about 1500 Option B's give you an even chance of ending up either with 1000 or $2,000. Um, but think about the choices this way. By choosing A in the first case uh, and B in the second, it really shows an inclination to be more conservative if you can lock in a sure profit, but an incl- inclination to be more risky if you can potentially can avoid losses. So we're going to go through some of the, the details and some of the reasoning behind this. Um, but people do find pain in losing, right? Yeah, it's called loss aversion. That's right. I mean, people don't like the idea of losing. So the idea of losing $500 guaranteed is so painful, you'd rather risk a 1000 to avoid that guaranteed loss. Or the idea of letting <clears throat> the $500 slip away in the first scenario for the chance of gaining a 1000 is discomforting enough that you're going to choose to opt for the sure thing. Um, that's just the way we're wired. 
You know, I mean, so here's how that translates into financial decisions. If you have lost a lot of money in the stock market, there's a temptation to gamble big in hopes of recouping it. If you have gained money, you have a tendency to be more conservative and to lock in those gains, even if they're really small. So, yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's called prospect theory. I mean, basically, people assign values to the gains or losses themselves. And, um, you know, and the, and the pain of loss is a stronger motivator than the re- reward of gain. And we see that. People are, you know, so there are some people that come through that they're just, they just don't want to lose. And in order yep. to get the higher rate of return, you've got to have a little bit of risk um, in the market. And, exactly. you know, it's, it's the actual gaining or losing rather than how the gains or losses leave your balance sheet overall that affects us. In fact, um, there's some research out there that people react more strongly to the pain that comes with loss than they do the pleasure that comes with an equal gain. Do you, do you see that? I mean, is that kind of yeah. what you've, I mean, I think, you know, certainly 2008 um, is a very, was a very painful time for people. That's right. Um, and markets have, have done very well and people are happy, but not as, it doesn't seem as happy as they were sad in 2008 with the markets. Th- that's exactly right. I mean, pain is, is just a more powerful, um, motivator it is. than than the pleasure of gain you know it's the old illustration of somebody putting their hand you know you have a thousand dollars a thousand twenties or whatever in one hand and you have you have um uh you know a lighter in the other hand you know are you willing to put your hand over the lighter <laughs> and endure that pain while you pick up you know twenty dollar bills with the other hand and people aren't i mean you know the Pain is a lot more powerful motivator than pleasure, is what their point is. Yeah, that's right. So is, is loss aversion a bad thing? And, and not always. Um, you know, take lifetime savings for those in retirement or close to retirement. I mean, it's better to care about falling too far than climbing um, to finding richer rewards. But oversensitive to loss can also have negative consequences. I mean, think about panic selling when the market just, like, drops um, I mean, the injured want to stop the bleeding. They don't, they don't always consider the misgivings when the markets then go back up again, and they're sitting on money under the mattress, and we do see that. We see markets have gone down, and then people get out, and they'll never get back in. They'll be in cash pretty much forever. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, according to a professor here at the University of Michigan, if you had missed the 90 best-performing days in the stock market from 63 through 2004, your average return – annual return would have dropped from almost 11% to less than 3%. Um, you know, that's that's the 10,000 trading days. If you miss 90 of those 10,000 trading days, it's only less than 1% of the days. $1,000 investment would have been worth around $3,200 instead of $74,000. Mm. So you can't afford to miss those great days in the market. Which means you have to be in there for some bad ones. you got to be in there the whole time. That's the point. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's another pitfall here, Steve. Uh, loss aversion can cause investors to hold on to losing investments for longer than they should. And there was a, a study uh, done by the University of California in Berkeley um, that found that investors were for more, far more likely to sell stocks that had risen in price than to sell those that had fallen. And, and these researchers looked at like over 10,000 accounts from uh, 87 to 93, and their findings were that the investors had sold, outperformed uh, the stocks they had kept by another 3%. So, you know, the the trying to make that back up um, can cause you some issues. Um, most people are willing to lock in a, a sure gain that comes from selling a winning stock or fund, and they are willing to lock in a sure loss 
of selling a losing investment, even though some of the you know there's some good reasons out there. Um, but the prospect of selling a, a losing investment makes investors more willing to hold on in the hope that if they wait long enough, the stock will rise and the risk that the stock value will remain lower or drop even further. So you know, they, they look at this on a paper loss standpoint. So a couple, couple thoughts for consideration as we wrap this up. Assume you're more sensitive to losing money than you think. Um, make sure you diversify, not just by asset types, but also by, by the time frame involved. So maybe you have some bonds in there as you get closer to retirement. And consider that you'll need you know, to draw on that investment. Um, the longer the time period you have, the more money you can have at risk and in, in equity investments. But again, it kind of depends on what your plan is and making sure that everything's kind of tied and coordinated together. Yeah, unfortunately, there's rarely any consistency in that uphill battle to manage your own portfolio for a lot of people. I mean, what ends up being critical is making sure the invested money is there when you need it. You know, if money's are are needed in the short run, whether it be for college planning or upcoming housing expenses or travel plans, you know, portfolio holdings and strategies will be directed to those needs. And those holdings will have different characteristics than the part of the portfolio that's earmarked for funds needed in the long term. You know, we call this portfolio mapping, you know, where time is used as the primary determining factor in the way that you construct a portfolio. But I think the overall key is diversification. Yeah, that's right. And and so you got to just make sure that you have a plan, you're diversified, and um, there will be ups and there will be downs. But as long as it's within a plan, it can it can it can work. Exactly. Okay, good topic. That leads us up here to our last item, and that is the prescription of the week. Yeah, so this is um, talking about uh, financial advice. Stop taking that from your favorite uncle. Uh, CNBC gives a lot of financial advice, Jim Cramer, et cetera. Uh, you know, what we see is that, that people trying to predict markets and trends and so forth, they're wrong more than 50% of the time. So if you're making your financial decisions based on headlines, you're not going to do well long term. So instead, you know, be diversified. Use mutual funds is how we what we see that has has uh, has worked well historically. Um, and uh, make sure you have a plan and it all fits into the plan. So got to turn off that TV sometimes. Exactly. Yeah, those tips that come from the uncle at Thanksgiving, yeah. probably not worth your time. So <laughs> uh, don't follow the hot tip of the week, that's for sure. Okay, that brings up to a close for this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week to MoneyMD.net to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Do check us on our website, MoneyMD.net. Email us your questions at info at MoneyMD.net. Give us a call, Richard Young Associates, 706 739 0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Have a good one.